shit, that was awkward. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I've had that. I've had kids disclose, like, my uncle's growing plants in the basement and putting it on Facebook. And, like, the Surrey RCMP officer is like, more. Yeah. More. Yeah. <laughs> this is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a national speaker and educator on social media who has been delivering presentations for school districts across Canada for well over a decade. He also delivers a number of professional development training sessions to a diversity of corporate and nonprofit groups, most recently with RCMP detachments, BC Hydro, ICBC, Northern Youth Workers, the Illinois State Police, and even a dental conference in Wyoming. He also consults and guides clients with professional consultation of social media strategies with regard to risk assessment and internal education of teams. I've been chomping at the bit to have this guy on to discuss social media and technology. He is Jesse Miller of Mediated Reality. Jesse, how are you? I'm pretty good today. <laughs> Are you? I, I'm just Compared impressed. Compared to other days? I'm impressed by that intro. It's, I'm impressed by that you intro. You broke it down to some good parts. And I was like, oh, that's right. I was in Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> Not many people get to do work in Wyoming. No, they don't. And there's no direct flights. So you fly into Denver and then you drive across Wyoming for four hours. Oh, that's and fun. So you got to see the state. You got Well, parts of it. And obviously there are parts of it that are a little bit more bleak than others. It's not like you're on the Yellowstone <laughs> side of it. But um, yeah, you go into any environment that's different than your own comfort level. Mm -hmm. And, and Wyoming is a very strong red state. So you go sure. in open-minded, you're looking for new adventure. And uh, that was a great conference where they had seen me in Chicago and mm -hmm. invited me to come to their community. And anytime somebody's willing to take a risk on an outside speaker, you want to bring as much of an open dialogue as you can without making sure you, you don't offend anybody. Sure. And so I had one guy ask me, so in Canada, healthcare, to explain <laughs> it to me. I'm like, I really can't, but I can tell you about privacy violations involving social media and healthcare. Right. And, and then you can find some common ground because it's very similar in their concerns and of how devices get used. And yeah. How patients are Googling everything. And that's where you really can engage an audience and then throw in some really fun Canadian I feel topics. like you make a great first impression because you made a great first impression here by bringing me a bottle of booze. Well, which I, wins. Which I would, uh, I would open up right now if, if I didn't have to drive. And I also want to be on my game while I'm talking to you. But well, I appreciate that gift. And I wish more guests brought me, you know, a little something, something. That's so for I the next so group of listeners. But maybe I just wanted you <laughs> off your game and be like, let's let's just see if I'm I can. I'm not falling for I it. I can dictate this. Even though I'm not opening up the bottle right now. Cheers and shout out to Jody Vance who connected us. Mm -hmm. And she spoke very highly of you. And I'm excited to have you on. One of my big things when I look at the culture right now is this central paradox to all of our psyches, I believe. We're more connected than ever through technology and social media. And yet the incidence of loneliness seems to be on the rise. So what is this relationship between the increasing immersion in our online world with our increasing loneliness in our offline world? Are we lonely because of technology? In my opinion, no. Okay. I, I think that... Technology has allowed us to become isolated in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And within that, if you see any telecommunications commercial, everybody in a family home is individualized on devices. Sure. They're not being interfered with anybody else's positioning on the internet. Yeah. Uh, we have one big screen where one person's watching in a living room, and then there's another person on an iPad, and somebody else is running upstairs with their phone. I think in certain places of community internet has interfered with what we expect from the family home right. or from a workplace or from a cafe where we see two people not talking because they're both on devices and the but that's everywhere right like on the yeah. bus on the street like everyone is on their phone no one is like yeah we got interacting with their environment well we have boomers sharing those memes where it's like you know, we used to do stuff in the day. No, you didn't everybody was reading a newspaper on the subway <laughs> we, we've never really wanted to 
engage with strangers. And then when we did, it was awkward or it was welcoming. It, it, it was all about the situations, sure. right? But now with tech, we have kids. I'll give an example. I have a client and he, he's, he's a lawyer and he, he sometimes says to me, hey, I got somebody who's screwed up on social media. What can I do to assess this? Because it's not criminal, but I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And one day he reached out with his own concern. He says, I have a 15-year-old son and he's been playing video games. And he was quite blunt. He said, I got a weird kid. And I love it because I work a lot with kids. And when somebody says weird, I'm like, tell me a bit more about what weird means. And yeah. this guy went to law school. He played rugby. He was he was quote unquote popular. He was everything that you would kind of say, your parents are probably pretty happy based on that old patriarchal idea of what your son's going to do. Sure. And now he's struggling with a kid who's playing video games, doesn't want to play sports, mm-hmm. isn't really interested in the things that he can connect with. Right. And he says... I'm really concerned about his safety because he's playing against somebody who I can't identify if this person's legitimate, same age. And I said, well, where's the person living? He says, I don't know. So we did a quick talk and I got back in touch with him and I said, what's your kid doing on the internet? And he said, well, he's playing a game. The kid lives in Tennessee and I think this is legitimate, but I still want to verify. Okay. So they connect. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, as any parent should, right? Yeah. They had a Skype conversation, the two boys and the two dads get on camera and like lean into each other and give a wave. Like, like you're legitimate. I'm legitimate. Okay. And the next day he says, I got a LinkedIn request from the dad. Okay. We're connected that way. And about six months later, he was going to a conference. They arranged, they brought both boys to the city mm-hmm. and they, they're friends. Yeah. That's asked, cool. It's yeah. awesome. Right. But he says, my son is weird and he's lonely. He doesn't yeah. have friends. Kids don't get him, but he found his best friend on the internet. And so I grew up in a time without the internet and I can remember feeling somewhat isolated in certain circumstances, but I was, you know, friendly with everybody. I kind of fit into spaces, Mm -hmm. Um, but I never knew the kids at the other secondary school really well, unless I was doing extracurriculars or whatnot. You were siloed. Yeah. In your space. Yeah. And um, what technology has done is it's given people who might be a little bit more introverted the ability to find an audience, to mm-hmm. find people who they have similar interests with. And whether that's the online dating world or whether that's the idea of just having a community where ideas are shared, um, people will go to the technology to find the people who give them comfort. The problem right. is, is that the person sitting beside you who you've committed your life and time to is really upset that you're trying to watch a movie together, but you keep checking your phone. Yeah. And and so you see those disclosures. I work a lot with um, uh, counselors and social workers who will highlight in the family home, there are kids who feel dismissed because an adult in life is too busy on their phone to acknowledge the great kid in front of them who's looking for connection. Yeah. Um, and so there are parts of the loneliness factor where we say, uh, you know, 100 people responded to a survey and they said they were more lonely it doesn't mean that social media is to blame or technology is to blame. It is sometimes mm-hmm. about our expectations and how we communicate to those that we spend time with. I'm looking for some time from you where you're present, not mm. just there. In terms of expectations, social media also kind of ramps up those expectations as well. If you're on Instagram or Facebook and you're seeing all these people in your network having fun and doing great things, maybe it also raises the expectations of where you feel like you should be. Partially, I think there's also the idea that we have this idea of being on demand for everything we do, where we have right. to advertise or we have to share it. And that's part of one segment of social media use. There are people mm-hmm. who don't use it at all. They just have it to look at whatever's going on around around them and their friends and family, right. but they're not inclined to share as often. Sure. Um, but what's really interesting to me is that there isn't this idea of competing. It's whether or not you're comfortable. And so some people are really comfortable sharing every aspect of their life. Too comfortable, I would say. (laughs) Sometimes. Um, And then there's another aspect where if you're not, if your value of I should share something, I need to compete with that person, Mm -hmm. that's like any other environment we've ever had. It's going to a dinner party and like, you know, that person's wearing the same outfit as I am and we got to go change. Or um, I don't want uh, to see these people because every time we're there with them, this person's always talking. But the thing is that person's always talking now on social media because they have a platform and they have the ability to complain about whatever they want and share. So I'm inclined to think that we very much we're, we're adjusting all of us. I mean, it's only 15, 16 years of Facebook, 12 years of the iPhone. Right. We don't have enough to compare and contrast on whether or not people are actually clinically lonely or clinically disengaged. Okay. Um, but there are parts of it when our emotional adjustments are, are changing where we can't compare the 20th century values to 21st century realities. Mm-hmm. And for kids, whenever they hear from parents, when I was a kid, this is how we did things. We saw, saw people face to face. Kids have a thousand retorts to that saying, yeah, 
but that's not the way things are today. And let's talk about the reality of being connected in a certain way with these tools. Right. Which brings me to my next question. You had brought up online dating, right? And I would say online dating is now supplanted any other form of how to meet someone if you're single. I'm single right now. I don't think you can meet people in real life. I think it's actually much easier just based on the volume of people you can meet, the people you can be exposed to online. It's just much easier and way more people are doing that online than, say, going out to a bar with friends to try to meet other single people. I don't like to put a moral judgment on good or bad, but I am curious now that you've taken the offline world and said, okay, the norm is now going to be you only meet people online. What are the consequences of that? What are the differences, perhaps, in terms of the end results? I think if two people met in 2007 via Facebook, Mm -hmm. they would never have announced it, right? It would have been, we met on Facebook. Yeah. Right. You'd whisper it very quietly to your friend and then you'd (laughs) pretend that you met at a bar, right? Sure. Um, I think with the aspect of being able to communicate to somebody via your mediated profile, Mm -hmm. you omit 10 first dates. You take away a lot of that awkwardness of of trying to figure out how to talk to each other. You very much can share bits and pieces of who you are Mm -hmm. and decide how you want to spend your time. And in an economy where time is valuable, um, maybe that's something that's really beneficial to us. We we knock away some of that uh, excess communication and and say, I'm just going to talk. And and you're not spending two hours trying to get somebody to talk to you. You're doing it through text or through uh, direct messages. What's interesting there is that it's been so normalized now that we actually see more successful relationships end up in what one person's value would be marriage through online dating. And I think the stat is in, in the United States in 2017, a quarter of all marriages were attributed to some form of online dating. Mm-hmm. But on the on the flip side, a third of all divorces had some form of technology and social media cited as to parts of the reason why the marriage was dissolved. Oh, really? But a lot of those were traditional-based marriages where people had met in high school or they met university. Mm. They got married based on the expectations, the cultural expectations of family and community. Sure. And then the internet opened up some perspectives for them. Yeah. And 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 I think what's interesting as a whole is that if kids are watching their family engage with people and 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 use tools or let's say have a single parent who's mm-hmm. opting because they say I have no time to even go out, I can't get a babysitter, they might find somebody fantastic. They also might find somebody horrible. Yeah. The bars though aren't losing the dating scene. I think there's just still another this is an adjunct. This is just another path that people can explore. Sure. And if it works, it works. Right? Like anything else in life. I guess my main concern with all of this is that I think that there is an inherent disconnect from our true selves and our avatars through the use of technology and social media and everything else. And I think that disconnect is perhaps where we feel lonely or out of place or something isn't right. And an example I like to use, and I've used this on the show as well, is this idea of road rage, right? You'll get very normal people but you put them behind a car or you put them behind a driving wheel and for some reason they turn into jerks, they get angry. But if someone bumped them, you know, walking down the street, they'd be totally fine. But if for whatever reason they're interfacing with this technology and they turn into a different person because there is that disconnect between themselves and the driver next to them and they're each in their individual technology. And I think we see that online as well. We see that in, you know, people who rage tweet, including, you know, President of the United States. People who perhaps act one way online, but are completely different in person. So if this phenomenon is true, and maybe it isn't, but it's just something that I've observed, how healthy is it to be so immersed in an online world in how we communicate with each other than person to person? So you've got me thinking, because I'm going all the way back to Second Life. Right? The yeah. idea that people had these avatars. There was a Michael Douglas movie years ago that involved the internet where they had to use virtual reality technology okay. and he ha- and he's stealing files in VR and it's it's horrible animation, but at the time it was amazing. Okay. Um, what I The game? It, well, it's kind of... It was, Bro, what was it called? It was called Disclosure? Disclosure? Okay. No, and and yeah. so in the movie, the company's designing this virtual reality system. He puts it on in a hotel room to make sure that the other file doesn't get stolen. But you literally see this avatar of a person working in a business opening up a filing cabinet and taking a computer file out. And <laughs> okay. It was so 90s about what this would look like based on cloud computing and yeah, where yeah, we're yeah. heading. 
But to your point of the road rage, um, there's a comedian whose name, it's like that public shame thing where it's like, we can't say the person's name anymore. And I think they had a whole skit about that idea of like, you would say this in a vehicle, but you would never say it in an elevator. Sure. And and you're right. We live in our, these encapsulated spaces where we forget the glass is two-way. And mm-hmm. and I used to do this thing where if you pulled up to a red light and you'd see a, see a person picking their nose, like you dismiss it because it's, it's not a big deal because you have no idea who the person is. But if it was somebody you knew, you would change everything about how you interacted with them the next time. You'd be like, I know this. I mean, I think there's a Seinfeld skit about that. Yeah, yeah. But interestingly, um, to the avatars, I mean, whether it's a video game character or whether it's uh, it's your own social media platform where you're putting yourself forward facing, mm-hmm. the, there is a, an accountability in that sense, in the sense that the internet, if you Google somebody and you're looking for verifiability of who they are, mm-hmm. you should be fairly transparent in that space. And if you're going to be aggressive and you're going to be a person who rage tweets, um, I don't give a lot of credence to the current occupant of the presidency. But sure. one thing I will say for sure is that it seems like he's true to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we, we know the person as a reality star. We know the person as this uh, braggadocious uh, person in business. Fair enough. But yeah. he challenged that and said, here's what I can do based on what I know my star power will allow me. And he mm-hmm. rewrote that book on how traditional, I'd say, democracies are looked at because yeah. it's the American dream. Anybody could become president. And that changed my work because I couldn't even stand in front of a group of children and say, you should be careful what you tweet because you might not get to elected office. The second that happened, I said, that that credence is all gone. Now I have to backtrack on that dialogue yeah. because that that value has changed, right? We never saw the previous occupant tweet that way. Yeah. It was very curated and it was a, a forward-facing, I'm a professional and, and I'm, and to be honest, Obama was very folksy, right? He sure, engaged yeah. di- dialogues that were important and he crossed a lot of, of boundaries and barriers. Mm-hmm. But in that... We're at a stage now where the person who owns a trucking company and they're more blue collar and think things are a little bit more conservative valued, they might be the one who goes on the internet and doesn't give it whatever because this is their feeling and now they have an audience and and they're very much emboldened. Mm -hmm. And if we flip it around to the idea of our dual personalities, there are people who are very vulnerable in that regard and they say, oh, I didn't even know that this would ever get out and now I'm being fired from my job Mm -hmm. and now outrage culture's got me. And I would say the more comfortable your landing pad is, the more transparent individuals will be to good or bad behavior. And what we can take away from the current occupant of the presidency is that his landing pad is always going to be one where somebody's paying him for something. And so he doesn't care. He doesn't care about something where he might offend somebody. And that's really interesting in the social media economy because Mm -hmm. the economy itself has now become a dialogue where if we talk about shame, how much shame do we apply to the idea of you can't get a job because you have this offensive thing? One other person might say, it's not a big deal. It doesn't bother me. It's not as bad as some what somebody else has. And, yeah. and if you contrast that, go back to 2011 with the Vancouver hockey riot, there were a lot of people who said, these people will never get jobs. Yeah. Well, a year later, we weren't talking about them anymore. And I'm sure some people had to sit at an interview table and say, I'm sure you Google my, Google my name. Let me tell you what I learned. I'd rather hire that person who's gone through the social media turmoil mm-hmm. because they're less likely to make a mistake with my brand. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess I just wonder, you know, does the technology give you a propensity to disconnect from who you truly are? And and does it give you uh, an incentive to tap into perhaps base emotions more than you would as you would filtering in real life interactions. Partially, or it could give you the ability to be more connected to who you are. And now the environments have changed. If you're a true introvert and being in an open space and having a bunch of people who are extrovert around you would be uncomfortable, but you have to go to that dinner party. Sure. Maybe having the ability to play a video game and talk to your friends while you know, winning a level of Fortnite makes you sure. makes you more human, right? Yeah. And, and And I guess that's my next question is, can we create genuine communities online? Yes. Can we we recreate sort of the communities that we've created offline and in person? And can we recreate them in exactly the same emotional value, health value, whatever, online? Yes. And I think we actually have a better chance to step out of the ones that make us feel uncomfortable. So I'll give an example. School is an environment, right? Yeah. We perceive that everybody has to go to school. Right. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, if you were uncomfortable in school, your parents would say, tough, you're going to school. Sure. And then if it got really bad, they would find you another school. And if you're in a smaller town where there's only one school, that's where you went. Hmm. Um, 
But now you have kids who can say, this class isn't feeling great for me. Mm -hmm. There's an online option and this is where I'm working really well. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you take away those, exten those extenuating stresses that don't help a student get to the end goal of, of having a well-developed education. Right. But another person would turn around and say, yeah, but that makes you stronger. Going through those adversities makes you stronger and you don't get that behind the screen. Mm -hmm. right? And so maybe there's a part of this where the internet now, some of those adversities, those challenges, that person who's rage tweeting at you, um, maybe that's part of the adversity struggle now where you've gone through the social media ringer and now you're dealing with something and now you come through the other side and you're a little bit banged up, but you're better. Hmm. Um, but you do take a lot out of the equation from something that's offline and in person, right? Like there's tonality, there's body posturing and, and body language, and there's a whole different thing going on when you're talking to someone face-to-face -face in person versus texting someone. Very much so. Right? But There's so much more subtext and, and richer subtext. And I almost were, and I'm not trying to push back. I'm, I'm just genuinely curious. That, Please push back because it, <laughs> it's a good dialogue. Well, well I, I'm just genuinely curious. Like that form of communication is very important. And if you sequester yourself from that, then you become unable to read social cues in person or communicate with people in the same way. You know what I mean? Like it almost feels like you have to do both. Like, yes, you should be able to write in an articulate way, but at the same time, you should be able to speak and communicate with someone in person. But that goes back a, to, it goes back to my idea way. of the kid being weird, right? We have a baseline of normal. And right. that normal is you should be able to reach out and shake someone's hand. You should be able to look someone eye to eye and have a conversation. There are people who are not good at that and never going to be comfortable with that. Sure. And, yeah, and, yeah. and they're terrified of going to environments where that exists. Mm -hmm. So now the ability to make a living and, and, and do something with the comfort of their desk at home and, mm -hmm. and work that way, they're more efficient. They're better. They can say, this is who I am and I'm comfortable in this space. Mm -hmm. um, but when we value a certain expectation, we negate those individuals who might need different supports. And and so that's where schools accommodate, that's where- uh, Sure, but a lot of these things are also learned, right? It's not like you come out of the womb fully understanding tonality or yeah, it's, body language or that no, type of thing. And, those are learned behaviors as well. Yeah, and those so are- So you're not giving someone an ability to learn that if, if from the start, you're keeping them away from it. Like, that's my only yeah. concern. I'm, I'm inclined to think, too, that there's people on social media where we really appreciate what they do online. Mm -hmm. And then if you met them face to face, it would the bubble would all burst. Sure. Right? Yeah. But it's the same as anything in life, whether yeah. it's a celebrity. Yeah. You know, it's like they're the most amazing celebrity in, in, in the way you perceive them. You meet them face to face. They're not kind. You're like, oh, everything's everything's devalued now yeah. uh, just based on that on that idea. But what's really important for me is that there's there's this grouping of ideas that come together in the sense that you go through your steps in life and you're supposed to have this end result that looks almost harmonious to everybody else. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not what we do it, it, overall. It, we, we can participate with one another. Some people are more comfortable with groups of people. But technology should be able to expose you to more things. It should allow you to. And, and remember mm -hmm. Pokemon Go when everybody was sure. walking around trying to catch them all? Uh, there was a really great <laughs> interview on CTV where they found somebody in Montreal and they ran up and you can see the person was like, terrified that they're being interviewed yeah and then somebody else came beside them and they said what are you doing and he said i'm walking around but i'm i'm really not comfortable being interviewed and later on <laughs> they apologized yeah but they got him on cbc radio and they basically said what was going on with pokemon go and he said i don't really leave my house but with this game and the people that i've connected to mm -hmm. i'm now inclined to go out and do this and so the technology brings people together in that regard and now i would he, agree yeah. yeah but now that person's pushing their own comfort zone to do something involving tech. Without that, right. they would not have been out walking the streets of Montreal trying to catch things. Would you say that there are limitations in a way? Because you can't parent entirely behind a computer screen or a smartphone no. screen, right? No. Like There are things where just biologically in terms of touch and eye contact mm -hmm. that, that still matter. Very in, much in certain relationships, particularly. Well, and, and that's interesting you bring that up because there's a there's a I, I can't remember the specific science behind it, but there's an idea that if a child cannot connect to their parent very well before the age of five, mm -hmm. there's going to be certain themes about that child's trust levels, the right. idea of the cortisol levels, the functioning, mm -hmm. uh, having a safe person, and um, within that idea, 
I don't know whether or not my parents were loving and engaging at my early years prior to me remembering them, but I can very much remember remember them being participatory, engaged, interested in the things I was doing. So there was no negating the value of putting a kid in front of a TV in my home. It was the idea that you participated and very much they wanted to know about my day. Right. But for some children now, we hear disclosures where they say the parent was on their phone the entire time. And mm-hmm. if you see parents, especially pushing a stroller, there's a lot of the kids staring up, looking at face, and yeah. then there's a phone in between. Yeah. And there might be a technological disconnect because the child's perception is that that tool is a necessity. Mm-hmm. And some parents would say, well, this is how I'm getting through mat leave, or this is how I'm staying connected to things. And there's yeah. those justifications. But we will see more disclosures in the next 10, 15 years where the first generation of kids that we've had on social media are going through high school and about to graduate. Mm-hmm. And the next group coming through where we'll compare and contrast those kids. And we might see different data mm-hmm. where that point of yours of the idea of the te- technological disconnect stopping certain n- learn behaviors from developing will be very much one of, I didn't learn that because my parents were always on their iPad or always on their phone. Right. And interestingly enough, I had somebody disclose to me recently that they watched their parents get iPhones when they were in high school. And now they're a young adult living their life and doing things and their parents still have like the next iPhone. Sure. But interestingly enough, she said, my dad was always on that phone checking emails, Blackberry kind of style of like getting frustrated looking at the device. And she said, when I go out for dinner with somebody, I'm looking for somebody who's not acting like my father on a device, right? And that's that's that first shift that's fascinating. into yeah. technology becoming the thing where maybe the pendulum will swing a different way where we'll see less of it. My other concern with online communities, I think there is some great potential. I mean, I think of if you're someone who's LGBTQ in a small community and, you know, trying to connect with other people like yourself, you know, the online community is amazing for mm-hmm. that certain anxieties or people who are just not extroverts. Yeah, it's a great way to connect, great way to have a social environment of some sort. My concern also is that you can connect people in very negative ways. And we've seen this with things like the incel community or hate groups that suddenly can snowball very quickly online. Mm -hmm. And not only are they now festering their own issues hatreds, whatever, but they're also now spreading it to others and trying to draw in others as well. Is this sort of, you know, we have to take the good with the bad? Is technology more vulnerable to the bad than the good? Where where do you stand on these type of communities? So it's not new. It's been around for a long time in the sense that you can harbor hate in spaces, especially Mm -hmm. dark spaces. Mm -hmm. And, um, the sec- but it's really hard to come public with your hate. Like if you are an incel yeah. or one of these people, it's really hard to go on the street and declare your hatred or your misogyny for women uh, and try to find like-minded people. But it's really easy to do that on the internet, right? Well, it's easier, but you're also looking for the environments. And Mm. so um, if we look at how hate has propagated itself around the world in the past hundred years, there's there's very notable incidents, but it was a person on a university campus handing out a flyer. Right in the 1960s, saying, "Hey, we got this meeting. You should come if you're interested." Right. right, and then it's the person who gives a little nudge in a work site, saying, "Yeah, I don't want this person working with us either. There's a bunch of us getting together, and we should talk about this." Think about mm. you ever see the movie American History X? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. There's the parking lot scene where all the cars are in a circle, and and uh, Ed Norton's character is doing this big talk about let's yeah. let's bring people together. How did he weaponize people in his community to target this perception of illegal immigrants who are stealing jobs? Right, that mm-hmm. movie did the the best it could with the technologies that were available at the time to show how you could bring like-minded That's true. ideas together. Now, if you look at the internet, um, give an example. Have you ever heard of the website Stormfront? Uh, it's a KKK or white supremacist. White yeah, it's been society. shut down. It it went when it got shut down. It found its way to the dark web. Basically recreated in certain spaces. Okay. It exists on on Chan uh, on Chan uh, uh, message boards. Okay, but about ten years ago. In Metro Vancouver, there were people posting on Stormfront highlighting how they were going into secondary schools and trying to recruit people who are vulnerable. Really? And these were wow. these were other students. And they would basically write and say, met somebody today who I think has potential hmm. based on our conversation. And they would write this openly. Thing is, at the time, no one was paying attention because no one thought that there would be anybody who would be 
susceptible to falling into that kind of recruitment based mm-hmm. on everything we do on Remembrance Day and everything that we have in our community based on a diverse space. Yeah. But on Stormfront, there are people trying to get people to take those next stages. And then you have this weaponization of the platform to get vulnerable minds to buy in. Yeah. So, wow. but that was static internet. Like that's yeah. a kid sitting at home, you know, dialing up through CompuServe or through Yahoo because they got a disc in the mail. Right. So our next steps go to that mobile use of technology. And so whenever we see a viral video, whenever we see content, it ends up on all these different websites where you have different opinions about something. And mm-hmm. the second that somebody writes something saying this person deserved it because of, and let's say their ethnicity. Yeah. Now you have somebody who's made a comment. Somebody goes to that comment, sends a message, and then you can get that person more radicalized. You can send information. You can send them propaganda. Um, I would say- And sometimes it's passive too, right? Like I've fallen into YouTube rabbit holes, nothing uh, hate-filled or anything like that, but I've certainly found myself watching a YouTube video going, how did I get here? But I can see how someone, you know, can watch Joe Rogan clips and they get to Jordan Peterson and then they get to like Jared Taylor and then they get to someone who's like full-on white supremacist and fall into that even passively. Like it's not even someone reaching out to them. It's just the suggested content that devolves yeah, and there was, I mean, there was a report came out today that highlighted that there's no algorithm that's making you get to that content based on watching two or three videos. I mean, mm. I've watched Peterson's videos. It doesn't mean that today I'm watching Shapiro. It doesn't mean that I'm going down a path where all of a sudden I'm feeling more and more radicalized. Sure. But if I'm participating in an online community where somebody's sending me messages saying, hey, what right. did you do today for the cause? What did you do today to address something? That is radicalization and yeah. and I think unfairly we did and, and that's happening oh very people. much so yeah. yeah and whether it's uh whether it's you know there was a lot of commentary in I'd say late 2000s about kids being radicalized for a jihadi or the idea that right. um you are going to be online and then you're going to fall into these incel communities I mean true incel communities are very caustic and toxic environments where even when I read that content I feel horrible leaving that space thing there's an individual out there in the world who sees yeah. the world this way but somebody who's fringe who just says there's nobody in school who wants to date me yeah, right? that's how quickly the internet can grab somebody, pull them into a space. And from my understanding, the origin of the incel community was not hate-filled. No, I've I've heard a few different pieces and I read a few different pieces about how the origin originally was for guys and and men to come together and not really hate on women, but just kind of create that community. And then it devolved into a very toxic, misogynistic yeah. community. The one... And that's again my worry of like. It sounded like something, at least where the intent was positive, and ended up with something that was so toxic in the end. And I think, I think whether it's incel or, or radicalization based on hate, I think we're all vulnerable on the internet mm-hmm. to get into these spaces. So what most people do is they justify the good, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm I'm connecting with all these people. I have all these subscribers. I'm an influencer. But what's it right. doing to you? What's yeah. it mean for you to have that audience? And um, we talked about this briefly, but I, I really believe the social media economy is one where people negate the value of what they give away. Mm-hmm. We forget that we're giving away our, our lives to the internet. We're telling people where we're going. We're highlighting yeah, who privacy, our friends are, yeah. privacy. But then we don't really focus on what the value of privacy is. Yeah. And and true privacy for me is about something that I, I'm either protected by law that another people, other people shouldn't know, mm-hmm. or something that is close to me and somebody else breached and I'm really upset that my person I trusted decided to put this out in the world. Yeah. And now what we see people do is we take aspects of our life and put it out there and let people judge it. And to your earlier point of whether or not we're living through this avatar piece, yes, there are parts of people's mental health that are impacted because they watch their ex-person posting on Instagram and they're having Mm -hmm. a hard time um, um, getting past that because there's just a simple touch of your phone and you can see something and something that you're not walking past in the street and then being triggered by. It's literally before you get out of bed. And that's where we have to look and see how we get people the support systems they need. And whether Mm. it's an individual who might be prone to radicalization, whether it's an individual who's just having a tough time because they're going through a life trauma, Mm -hmm. or when it comes down to it, somebody who is terrified that somebody's going to Google their name, right? How How do we empower that person to know that there's a safe space for you, but the internet might not forget this Mm -hmm. and we're going to move you forward. So it's almost like the pitfalls of this ever-connected community now requires more supports and safety nets. Like any community. For, for great, but I guess maybe different 
different challenges now. Mm-hmm. Right? And I was going to say, we, we dismiss certain aspects of this because it's still so new. Sure. Right? When people say, oh, kids are video, video game addicted, right? Yeah. They're not addicted to video games, but there might be aspects of their personality that are developing addictive qualities because right. of the way they're spending their time. Yeah. Right? And that becomes filling the void that, well, to be fair, most voids allow you to choose something that might not be good for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fair. Yeah. When we look at content that's online and this is sort of related to this you know the again the dark side of the internet a lot of that hatred that we're seeing there's an increasing pressure to distinguish what's real and what's not you followed the buffalo chronicle yeah. saga right can you explain what what that was and what that meant for the election that we just had partially um as as best i i can see it mm-hmm. a very appearance-based news agency shared stories. Yeah. But not a news agency that has any value if we look at what our news agencies are, right? So- They were spreading lies. They were spreading lies. But the version of lie is we don't have any proof that says this isn't a lie. So we're (laughs) going to go with what everything is being talked about on the internet. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to fuel the, the, the propaganda fire here. But yeah. there are parts of the dialogues that aren't anybody else's business. And so in that, why a person left their job, right? Mm-hmm. You have the prime minister coming forward very quickly and saying no. And then another person says, well, look how quickly they responded to it. it must be true. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a society that's that malleable in how they believe things on online, mm-hmm. one person says, hey, my glass is totally full now because there's some information that shows all of the things I believe are happening. Another person says, how in the world can a person with just a baseline education see this and believe it to be true? Mm -hmm. Then somebody else says, well, it's that great area of, well, we don't know for sure, but no one's saying otherwise. And and sometimes silence is just acknowledgement of non-fact. Right. right? Um, And we've seen that propagate a whole slew of different conspiracy theories, not just from Buffalo Chronicle, but from... Infowars and you know a bunch of other sources as well, like the Seth Rich Clinton murder yep. conspiracy, and I mean that's the first one that comes to mind. But are we good at differentiating what's real and what's bullshit? No, no, we're terrible at it. We're well, <laughs> it, we as a because you, you answered no real quick. We as a population, I yeah. mean, what is it? They said seventy-two percent of fake news in twenty eighteen that was transferred in Canada was transferred by boomers fifty-five and over on Facebook. Oh, right. it's all them. It's well, partially, yeah, partially, <laughs> but it's also the person who's 25 trying to make some money saying, I need to get some ad revenue here. I need to get the thing that I'm doing in my work right now attention. So if mm-hmm. I turn this into something where I'm getting some clickbait, this is going to fill my pocket. Yeah. And there is, there's a need for regulation in that space. Um, but at the same time, media literacy as a whole, it, it, it's, it's as valuable as literacy. Yeah. And if we live in a media world in which we do, uh, one of my favorite examples is I always ask parents, you know, why are you here to learn about the internet? What, what's your concerns? And I had a mom once say, well, I don't understand what Kardashians are. And I said, well, join the club. I don't, I don't really get it either. But then she said, I don't know why my daughter thinks that's a value. Yeah. And I don't have that answer. But I asked her, I said, do you know how they became famous? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders. And I, I went all the way back to the OJ Simpson trial and mm-hmm. all those connections. And she said, there's no substance here. And, and, not to negate the value of uh, of individuals in business who have recognized the power of doing something that really another person would say, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, we now are at a stage where the children who are learning about the world through media will be better than their parents. Yeah. They're, te- they're learning this in, in schools. They're learning it as part of a curriculum. They're mm-hmm. learning how to- And that's you- nice to hear that they are. Yeah. And, and it took a while to get there. I mean, when the current curriculum was introduced in British Columbia in, in 2017, that, that shift of how does how do we go from internet safety and talking about predation and talking about being kind and caring online? Mm-hmm. How do we take that value of a dialogue, put it into a small segment- yeah. And now introduce a larger dialogue about we need you to be a critical thinker who goes to multiple sources. And it can be Wikipedia because <laughs> that's gotten better. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, just the idea that they have another generation of educators who are helping guide that who grew up with these tools as well. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the benefit of education being one where the kids have a voice and parents are sometimes in the background going, OK, let's see what my kid, kids are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, kids 
design uh, Minecraft uh, obstacles for themselves and figure out mathematics along that way. Sure. But yeah. a parent's still trying to figure out why they don't have a port card, but they have a portfolio. <laughs> and so it's good that we're there. Yeah. But that media literacy piece, uh, it it's the idea that there is still a vulnerability, uh, and a big one, for children mm-hmm. because if they're not given the tools at home to nurture this, they are going to be more prone to some of those concerns we see with things like propaganda sharing and weaponization of the internet. And that's why we're seeing a lot of young, primarily Caucasian males in North America who are diving into that point of saying, I don't care if I'm sharing something hateful. No one is getting mad at me and I'm not losing my job. Right. And that's that voter who decided this is the way I'm going in in 2016. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting because it sounds like school children are now being given updated tools to what perhaps you and I were given. We went to the same high school. Yes. And Mr. Martin, who was my History 12 teacher, I will never forget the lessons that he taught me. And he particularly taught us lessons about critical thinking. And it was in a history class, but he was talking about, you know, what's the source? Who wrote it? How long, you know, how credible is the source? Also, can you corroborate the source? Are there other credible sources reporting or saying the same thing? What is the source's motivation or whatever? Like he gave us just a very basic rudimentary rubric to evaluate what we were reading. And that's something that stuck with me for the rest of my life. And that's why, you know, I have been duped by fake news in the past. I usually realize it qu- quite quickly, yeah. but I've been duped. I think we and all And then you have. delete the, tw- the tweet, right? You're like, I'm done. I, <laughs> I back it up. Yeah. I, I curate my Twitter in terms of what the links I post very carefully. Yeah. But I, I will say this, that, you know, it just sounds like all we have to do is kind of build on that mm-hmm. and refine the tools that we give the next generation of students for how to determine what's real and what's not real online. But I feel like the challenge is going to become even more daunting when we look at things like deep fakes mm-hmm. or how you can manipulate, you know, there's now hundreds of hours of me sp- speaking on the internet yeah. and someone can take that into a computer program and have me say whatever they want. Deep voice, right? Yeah. Um, You are correct in the sense that traditional vetting of information, finding auxiliary sources, uh, backing up your resources, Mm -hmm. that that works. And and we made the joke earlier about Wikipedia. Um, I remember early 2000s where people would say, these are not good resources. Mm -hmm. You need to give me something a little bit more academic. That community itself, I mean, we go back to community. The Wikipedia community holds that value of if, is this verifiable mm-hmm. to, to task? Yeah. And and you are kicked out of the community quite quickly if you're there just messing around with things. <laughs> yeah. Now, I never had Martin, but I had Mr. Garland. Sure. And his was one of, um, is there a humanity behind how you're sharing information? Are you, are you being aware of everybody else and their perceptions in the room? Mm-hmm. And that's the best part of the internet for me is that um, you could potentially end up in that one space that's very toxic and, and, and you're comfortable there because you don't like branching out. Hmm. But for some individuals online, they will be the first ones to say, I was prone to that. But playing this video game against this person from a different background knocked down that barrier for me. And I I, I don't know. I mean, I I think we're we're about five years apart. Mm -hmm. But the diversity in my class was not very high. And I don't know what your experience was in that regard, but um, it took a long time for uh, what I would say is the the, the mosaic of Vancouver to find its way to that neighborhood. Sure. And so him planting that seed for me was always look for other pe- people's voices and mm-hmm. other other opinions. And and now we do that so much mm-hmm. that sometimes there is that parallel of people going onto the internet and now feeling overwhelmed and they're looking for a common voice. <laughs> yeah. and, and unfortunately, that common voice might be the worst voice ever. Yeah. <laughs> or it could be the one saying, how does your identity fit into this? Mm-hmm. And that's where identity management and how we're t- teaching children how to use these tools is better than what we were doing five years ago. And I think in five years, it'll be significantly better because the teachers who are a little bit more inclined to dive into the deep end of the pool will not only have the interest, but they'll have the tools. And the scariest thing for me is when I go into a school and I find out a teacher has been using all sorts of auxiliary devices to find that engagement piece, to use the tools like YouTube, but they're not being given the right training. And then what are the risk factors that go into that? Right. How much of a threat is fake news to our democracy, the ideals that we hold in our communities, how big of a problem is this? And I, and I want to set aside the 
the hate communities and, and, and that kind of thing. I'm just yeah. talking about the fake news, the clickbait, the things that, uh, did you hear that Trudeau did this? And then yeah. it spreads like wildfire. In the next five years, it is probably the biggest threat to democracy. Mm-hmm. In the next 30, it might not be. Only because the people who might be a bit more prone to f- fighting in that silo of my belief yeah. will not be here to vote. And as I mentioned, the majority of fake news being shared by boomers um, in the United States and in Canada, mm-hmm. that that caustic, I'm going to get angry about this, you're going to see that person who isn't as open-minded potentially just not be in that space. And, yeah. and, and that's not necessarily a trade-off. It's just the idea that we will have people who are more centric mm-hmm. making choice. But as a whole, uh, fake news very much is the, and, and to your point of the deep fakes, it's how f- malleable is the human psyche to truth? Mm-hmm. Is it the idea that you saw something and now it's gospel to you, so you're the one pushing it out and now it gets more traction? Yeah. Or are you the person saying, no, this is total bullshit and I need everybody I know to know that? Yeah. But a family dinner could be the perfect example, right? Yeah. You have a family dinner where there's an uncle who just always says the worst <laughs> things. You eventually say, I'm not going to dinner. I can't, I can't talk to this person for yeah. two hours. Now, or you train yourself to tune it out. Or, or tune it out. Yeah. But then you can think about every movie or TV show where a family dinner has turned into the worst fight ever yeah. because we can't find that common ground. Yeah. But now if people are going to become more open and approach conversations in healthy ways, mm-hmm. and if we have a generation of individuals who are inclined to do that, um, there will probably not be as much of a concern in the next 20, 30 years about the fake news. It's mm-hmm. whether or not the content itself, if you can decipher whether or not it's legitimate. And, yeah. and that's where we'll have to start to see some regulations emerge. And, and with deep fakes, I mean, the technology is changing significantly faster than any legislation yeah. on this planet. Um, you are 100% right that when we give information to the internet, whether it be our voice, our likeness, our, our, our feelings, that can be weaponized against the individual mm-hmm. or to make people believe that something is legitimate when it's 100% not. Yeah. And and so that's terrifying. But and in that regard, democracy should be flexible where it changes with technologies as well. And hopefully- It's people, usually slow though. And like it's slow. As we talk about legislation and regulations, yeah. these things come in way after- the technology's already yeah. evolved and continues to evolve. And, and I hope that people don't vote based on what they see on Facebook. I hope that. I know that to not be true. Yeah. Right? But I'm comfortable enough that I subscribe on Twitter to what I would say would be centra- central left viewpoints. Sure. I started two years ago subscribing to central right as well because I felt that my value of it as an educator mm-hmm. was not being fully explored unless I saw how that conversation was happening on their side of the coin. And yeah. that's the benefit of the internet. I'm not having to sit there and turn Fox News on and torture myself for an hour and a half. I can periodically see some content and say, that person put out something that seems legitimate to them. Mm-hmm. How does their audience respond and what's the value of that audience? And like I said earlier in our introduction, being able to go to a place that is definitely out of my comfort zone with my work, mm-hmm. I, once I hear that voice, and see where a person has an opinion, that's where you can find true common ground. We just need more people willing to do that, to yeah. reach across any aisle, whether it be a, a dinner table or, or a physical aisle in a, in a parliament, and say, what do we need to do to really address the issues that your constituents are facing? I just had Max Fawcett on the episode before this one, and we were discussing political cynicism. And I think that's the central problem here. I think there's a distrust for politicians. I think there's a distrust for the media in a lot of different communities, left and right Mm -hmm. and center. And I think that cynicism is also exploited by politicians as well. Mm -hmm. You have the president telling you that there's fake news. You have politicians coming out against media sources that they don't like or that are critical of them. I think this offline problem of cynicism has to be addressed, and that's kind of the root of everything. And that will help us not fall into the traps of believing fake news. Because Mm -hmm. once you completely disregard the establishment, you are now prone and vulnerable to believing Infowars or Rebel News or whatever So let's take out the United States for a second. In Canada, I'm a firm believer that our politicians as a whole traditionally sign up because they want to represent their community. 
Mm-hmm. That's that's just a belief I have. Yeah. But in that, we don't see a lot of corruption in our Canadian politics compared to potentially what we see in the United States. We, yeah, we don't, but there's a difference between corruption and cynicism. Right? Very much so. But in that in that idea of lobbyists and and people showing up and and saying, hey, we need you know this product to come out of your state and and we're going to get you money under your campaign. Mm-hmm. We don't see that as as much in Canada. I would agree. Yeah. But if you flip it around, I mean, most recently we saw Sheer in a campaign and people were chanting, "Lock him up." Yeah. That was his John McCain moment. Yeah. That was his moment to stand up and say, I hear what you're saying, mm-hmm. but that's not us. Yeah. And he didn't do that, right? Well, he did say, let's, let's say, yeah. vote him out or But whatever. if you remember McCain <laughs> grabbing the microphone and saying, right. ma'am, he was no, much more stronger. Very yeah. much stronger. And that's him being a career politician yeah. who has done a lot and understood the value of a humanity, of humanity in, in politics. Yeah. And with Jugmeet Singh, I think that was part of the shining light of humanity in this, in this election. As much sure. as there was a toxicity, um, his book was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I read through every page and then I went back into pieces and I said, there's mm-hmm. there's a human being who's saying, I want to serve individuals mm-hmm. and I want my voice not to be overheard over the people. Yeah. And, and that really gave me a belief that politics can be so fluid that we can take the scary toxic pieces and mm-hmm. throw the internet crap in there as well. And still have a human being who wants to get into the fray. Yeah. And, and not because of any idea of grandeur, just because they're committed to the idea of being a person who's there for their country and their people. Absolutely. And I respect anyone who enters that fray and, and is trying to do a public service, basically. I think that's yeah. a tough job. It's a shitty job in a lot yeah. of ways. There's a lot of travel. You're away from your family. You're always getting shit on in the, in the news media. Yeah. But I think the the mechanisms of a big party and the communications and the the marketing strategies of a large political party are and by large cynical doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the necessarily the individual people are but they become cogs in that machine and they're towing a line and they're towing a line yeah yeah and i think there's a lot of reason for that i think a lot of politicians like to overpromise i think a lot of politicians and I should say they're strategists or their communications people like to overpromise. They like to divide us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just engendered a lot of the issues that we've seen in the last 10 years and a lot of disappointment, especially from the progressive people and progressive mm-hmm. ideologies, a lot of that disappointment that has led to things like Trump. But you can't ride a wave of hope without experiencing the next downturn of the tide. Yeah, yeah, right? that's and, fair. And so the pendulum swing would be one of if Obama won his election, his first election by by polarizing the Gen X early millennial voter using mm-hmm. Facebook. His next task was using Twitter to share good information about what they were doing. Right. And then in 2012, Romney grabbed onto that and said, wait a second, I've got a lot of parents and grandparents on Facebook now. Yeah. We're going to do this. And now we've shifted to, you know, Snapchat selfies and, t- you know, I mean, I love Singh's TikTok use because he was <laughs> the only one who was there. Yeah. Uh, but even then it was still kind of cheesy, like, we're trying to figure it out. Th- Jig meets? Yeah. It was good. It was awesome. It was pretty good. It was pretty Did good. Did you see Elizabeth Mays? Hers it, was terrible. It was terrible. But... <laughs> It was still like, okay, I've got Twitter down. He's, he's got Twitter down. He's got Instagram down. Yeah. And, and so he had the right people saying, TikTok, TikTok, we got to get into this space. And yeah, he did, but it, well. did it right. Yeah. yeah. And he's and he's flexible enough that he could say, I get it. I'm going to have some fun with this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but even today, I saw, uh, was it uh, Dr. Phil? Yeah. He's asking questions to the internet about Visco girls and what people are saying to him on Twitter. And the majority of the jokes back where it's like, this is my dad when he FaceTimes me. This is uh, this generational <laughs> divide where, where we have boomers who are in that space, yeah. but they're still using it based on their moral and, pers- and political values. Right. Um, I consider myself to be an individual who goes on and says, I don't care necessarily about the politician's party. I want to hear what the politician has to say to me. Yeah. But if everybody's believing that the politician is going to do something because there's one garbage bullshit article from the Buffalo Chronicle mm-hmm. saying this is what this person's done and this is what the other person... That's that true attack on democracy. Because if we can't take the person's opinion, their statement at factual value, and then back Mm -hmm. it up with good information, democracy will, in some way, crumble because the value of your vote changes. And and especially in the parliamentary system. Yeah. Yeah. How much do you feel fake news had an impact on the Canadian election? How much do you feel like fake news had an impact on the 2016 presidential election? 
the people who would subscribe to Trump being Trump, mm -hmm. they loved what he put on Twitter. They love the I'm making up names for people. I, I'm I'm targeting people on stage. Yeah, he was the he was a jerk. He and was sometimes jerk. people like the jerk. Well, and, and as a character, as a character, but I think also he lives that character in certain yeah. ways so much yeah. so that that was the idea of I'm tired of these politicians. I'm going to vote this way. And mm -hmm. and um, Liz Plank, who wrote uh, her her book right now for the Love of Men, she has a really interesting point where she says the majority of white female voters who voted for Trump mm -hmm. didn't vote because they didn't like Hillary. Mm -hmm. They voted because they wanted to protect their sons. Hmm. They voted because they want their jobs protected. They want their sons to have identities in their workplaces and in their communities. Hmm. And 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 was that informed by fake news effectively or was their concern real? Well, I would say their, their perception of, especially in what we'd say with the flyover states, mm -hmm. that's something that we have flyover provinces in the same yeah. way, right? Maybe that's partially the idea of if my kid can't get a job and we're concerned about them, I'm going to vote this way. I'm going to mm -hmm. do this for the benefit of, of that. I wouldn't say necessarily there's a, a fake news direct correlation, mm -hmm. but maybe there that mom on Facebook who reads it saying, if you vote for Trudeau, these jobs are gone. Mm -hmm. They might be inclined to say, hey, I got to vote this way because this is what I need my kid to be able to do, especially, and, and moms do this, they value their sons, right? And yeah. uh, so we kind of blamed a lot on white males, but we forgot that there was a large chunk of white females who said, I'm voting for this guy despite the horrible things he said about women, despite the fact he's been married three times and I'm an evangelical Christian who doesn't believe that you should get divorced at all. Sure. So the fake news part of it may have been benign. They may have voted just based on emotional response to whatever they saw coming their way. But what's that fueled at the dinner table, right? The dad who's saying, yeah, I saw this thing on Facebook, right? Maybe it's that mom who's saying, I, I don't want to have this conversation again. So yeah. I'm just going to do this. <laughs> and uh, I think it's, we have our parallel. I, I mean, I partially expected to see very similar results in 2019, our Canadian election that the United States dealt with in 2016. And remember when Facebook announced that they were going to use Canada as a testing ground to make sure that we all saw how advertisements were coming our way. And yeah. um, that seemed to fall apart. It totally did because no one cared so much about the fact that there was information on Facebook. Facebook said, we have third party content that we can't control. Mm -hmm. So that's where the buffer. They're not, not going to fact check on their own. No, basically. and that's where the yeah. Buffalo Chronicle, right, that looks like a legitimate paper, yeah. got Facebook traction because it's not on Facebook. It's just the people who take it and then propagate right. it. Yeah. Um, like right now with Alberta. But that must be propagated in a very strategic way. Like of they course. must have certain bots or whatever pushing and, it, right? Yeah, and there are companies that benefit from that. There yeah. are strategic political uh, groups that say, we don't care what the message is. We just need to pay our bills. Yeah. So we're going to help do this. Um, interestingly enough, on Instagram, and since the election uh, was finalized on Monday, uh, the we the Wexit, which is the worst yeah. hashtag ever. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Western Canada is exiting and we're here in Lower Mainline going, we're yeah. here. Like, we're, <laughs> yeah. What are we doing? We're not part of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, if you search that hashtag on Instagram, like currently this week, it doesn't come up. There's no there's no suggestions to it. But if oh. you go to someone's profile where they've actually tagged a picture with that and you click that, you then find a thousand posts on Instagram. And it's interesting. So Instagram is effectively shadow banning it. It's shadow, shadow banning it in the sense it. that it's only showing you exit, exit, exit stuff. It's yeah. not. It's not there yet in the algorithm. But the more traction it gets, the more people will see it. And so what's interesting is that when we think about hashtags and how they get used, there is some oversight. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, in a true community, you can make messaging work without regulation. Yeah. And and there is a lot of scary stuff on, on Instagram that shouldn't be available, but with the right knowledge of a hashtag, you can find it. And that goes to the huh. idea of the deep internet, right? The deep, uh, the deep web. Yeah. And some of that deep web content, people will say, well, it's all scary. No, it's just information that people don't want available to Google. So you have to know how to get it. It's like a dark alley. Right. But now on, on this hashtag, if you add an extra X, you'll find information or you'll, if you do it, you know, in a way that looks a little bit different than what we would write it out, you might find more people sharing. And that's how some information does very much become fake news. But yeah. at the same time, it's also how it becomes legitimized. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> I feel like I just took I, you down a scary path. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like I want another hour to chat with you about this stuff because I have a lot of questions and I feel like I'm going to ask you questions in the future as well, because this is, I think, a very important subject that we should all be talking about and we do all talk about 
fake news, but there is so much nuance and intricacies and evolution of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think trying to decode the matrix in a lot of ways is sort of the first step to understanding what it is. Because the interesting part for me as well is the people that are propagating this, like you said, it's it's not necessarily some big grand conspiracy. It's usually just some guy who's like, I can make a shitload of money yeah. with this clickbait because people love reading these terrible stories about Trudeau or these terrible stories about Obama or Hillary or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'll just turn this material out. And they don't even believe in anything. Like no. They might even be progressives, but they just see this money making And that's partially good business. As a whole, right in a in a capitalist market, that's the idea of you. Sure, saw, if snake oil is good business. Well, and, and to be fair, it's the idea of uh, how does business ethics fit into that. I mean, yeah. example, I shared a tweet today where somebody has uh, fashioned brass knuckles in the shape of Alberta, right? There's there's a potential. In there, he's like, we got to fight through this, and yeah. it's it's like it could have been a Photoshop image, but it's it looks awkward to me. I'm like, that's really a big commitment to your cause. You're, mm-hmm. you're fashioning, but now if somebody likes that, they can now open up an online store and sell that. I mean, to be fair, it's illegal in Canada to have brass knuckles, but when it comes down to the idea of stickers, right? There's yeah. a whole you know, fuck Trudeau sticker economy. Yeah. And it's- Which is crazy. It's crazy. And you drive <laughs> through Alberta and it's on the back of trucks. It's on the back of mom's soccer vans. Yeah. It's on it's on the side of an oil worker's hat. Yeah. Um, there's t-shirts. And, and so, I mean, how dare somebody say he's damaging the economy when there's a whole one based on him. Yeah. But when, it, when we think about the idea of any form of weaponized idea, it can have a wide variety of markets. It's not just in your screen where you click it and you read the content. It's now I'm buying the t-shirt. Now I'm buying the stickers. And like anything in life, you buy a music album, you like the band, you buy the t-shirt, you go to the concerts. Right. It's you're getting the populace who's buying in to go further. And now you got them in the pocketbook. Yeah. And, and there is a true economy of scale there. Now, social media plays a very interesting role because you wouldn't get that commercial for your sticker on traditional television, yeah. right? But now you can get it as a pop-up on Instagram and people are deciding to click you're, it. You're getting them where they're hanging out all the time yeah. in a way, it right? Partially, or where they're most comfortable because they're on a smoke break or lunch break and they're right. just flipping through the gram and, hey, look, here's a great t-shirt. I'm ordering this. Right. And 10 minutes later, it's already on its way to you. Sure. Yeah. Before I let you go, do you have any like golden rules for the internet to navigate the internet? <laughs> Yes, some sort of secrets for us. Yes and no. I mean, I've had teachers like I love when I work with kids and kids like I have I'll ask I have an audience of kids and I'll say to a teacher, teachers, put your hands up and they'll put their hand up and say, have any of you had a student in your class who goes from a grade six, seven reading level to university level reading overnight? And they'll come back and say, well, yeah, we have kids who just plagiarize off the Internet and think that we're total idiots. Yeah. And that we don't in any way, shape, or form measure their ability to put together a sentence with the Oxford comma. And they love challenging that dialogue. But I had a teacher last year basically say, any student who plagiarizes, I'm not going to call them out. I'm not going to make them feel bad. I'm going to highlight a couple of words. And if they can describe to me what those words mean, I'm going to give them a passing grade. But I'm also going to challenge them. See, that's a smart plagiarist because you're learning learning. while you're plagiarizing. I get it. But in that, like... When we went to university, there was not turn it in where they scanned your entire document to figure out if you were plagiarizing in real time. Towards the end of my university career, there was. Right, well, yeah. Five years. So <laughs> and you, you were the beta test, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the interesting part of it being when you do submit something to the internet, you're putting yourself into a vulnerable spot. Yeah. And so when kids submit things to a teacher, now they're learning that you can't just kind of do half, you know, half ass attempt on this. You have to try and challenge yourself further on what the Google search results give you because yeah. the teacher can do this equally. So whether it's a, a boomer who's trying to figure out what on Facebook is legitimate mm-hmm. or a child, we have our vulnerable groups and it's not a rule for individuals, it's a rule for all of us in the sense of community. Look for those in your life who are vulnerable to falling for a scam involving taxes or that the money in their bank account will be depleted by somebody who says, we just need your credit card and we can we can get you these millions of dollars from your uncle who died. Sure. 
But if we think on a whole, we really do worry about our children. Mm -hmm. But I'm of the belief that they're going to rewrite the expectation book, right? Mm. They play a video game against 99 strangers and they don't care that they're talking to a stranger, right? Whereas parents are really worried. They don't care that they're talking shit to a stranger yeah. too. And, and, and when I play Fortnite, I got a 12 year old calling me out and saying something like, I have a credit card, I have a passport, I could find you. But that's where you check your own, your own feelings as an out going, what am I doing here in the first place? Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is that I, I love playing video games and, sure. and I love playing video games with my kids and I love engaging in, in dialogues that involve tech. But if you are a person who's looking for the golden rule of the internet, mm -hmm. it's if you're pretty good at this stuff, help the people in your life who are most vulnerable. And it's not just your children. It's it's the family member you have who's check, just trying to check email to see if you know their family member sent them something, but now they're falling for a scam. And mm -hmm. the more we do that, I think we're gonna we're gonna isolate ourselves from some of the more financially impacting pieces. Yeah. But as a whole, the more we can support those who really do need to just understand how they can be targeted, mm -hmm. that becomes the better approach for the internet because we can't shut this down. We're not going back in time. No. Um, and privacy as a whole, I mean, there's a true value to it. There's a mm -hmm. true value to the idea that you have information that somebody is supposed to be duty bound to protect. And we have mm -hmm. those laws in place. But when it comes to things like consent and asking somebody, do you mind if I take a picture of you? Do you mind mm -hmm. if I share this? Um, especially in our environments where you could lose your job because you're doing something stupid, mm -hmm. right? We all do stupid things, but there has to be a humanity and empathy value to the internet as well. And I think that's going to evolve where we have more kids who say, I got something stupid on the internet. I'm not going to make this person feel like crap because of it. Yeah. Um, and the more we do that, the golden rule of the internet will change beyond settings and privacy expectations. It'll go to being kind, caring, and understanding the power you have with these tools. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's a great note to end on because I think on the internet, yes, we need way more empathy. And then also with that, we need to take care of each other, especially the most vulnerable, and cultivate those existing relationships and help each other out on the internet, whether that's our parents or our kids or our peers or whoever it is. Talk to them about it. Yeah. Talk to them about what we're reading and and have these dialogues that, that we had today. So, Jesse, I am so grateful for the time that you made for me today. I'm so grateful for the gift that you got me. If people want to read more from you, they want to track your career, get your hot takes, where do they go? So uh, I uh, I use Twitter primarily as my go-to. So I'm at Mediated Reality there. Um, and I do a lot of public speaking events. So for anybody in the room who's listening and have kids, uh, just check with your school. See if I'm going to show up and, and work with the kids in the community. Um, and then I do a lot of professional development. So they can reach out to their employer and be like, hey, can we get this guy in? But the thing <laughs> is, is that uh, I love when I go into weird dynamics of, of like, I never thought I'd be working at this conference. Sure. Um, and so what's really neat is I do pop up in a variety of spots and somebody says, I saw you at my kid's school and now you're here at my work. How, how in the world does that work? So, uh, but online there's usually some kind of booking and where I'm going to be. Cool. And the website is also Mediated Reality? Mediated Reality, yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the man when it comes to navigating the ever-changing world of online culture. He is Mediated Reality. He is Jesse Miller. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>